This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton and the Boston Consulting Group. Marshall L. Fisher, director of Wharton's Fishman Davidson Center for Service and Operations Management, has been researching issues related to retail supply chain strategy for many years. In this podcast, part of a series of interviews on procurement, Fisher highlights some of the challenges facing global procurement. And he discusses the example of Luan Tai, a Chinese company that built a giant supply chain city, becoming a one-stop shop for clothing manufacturers looking to outsource to low-cost producers. Well, Marshall, thank you for joining us today for another uh, in our series of podcasts on procurement. Marshall, before we uh, began recording our conversation, you were talking a little bit about some of the uh, interesting and kind of far-reaching changes that have occurred in uh in the in the area of procurement in the last 10 or 20 years can you uh tell our listeners a little bit about that yeah i'd be happy to um my knowledge on this is based on working with a number of uh, u.s-based product companies on supply chain strategy and i've been struck by two phenomena outsourcing and offshoring of their manufacturing operations uh in the 80s uh, thinking back a couple decades there was a a pretty vigorous debate within the U.S. about the need to strengthen and preserve U.S. manufacturing. And this was a time when the Japanese economy was in its ascendancy, and it was believed that that was due to their prowess in manufacturing. And the belief was you couldn't have a viable economy, particularly the U.S. economy, uh, without strong manufacturing. So uh, the message was keep manufacturing in the U.S. and make it stronger. Uh, boy, things have, have changed a lot in the last two decades. Most companies now are uh, outsourcing and offshoring manufacturing vigorously, almost to the point where you, you will find companies that don't make anything themselves or in the United States. Uh, it's going to low-labor-cost regions, predominantly Asia, Eastern Europe and Latin America, and within Asia, predominantly China. So I'm familiar with China from two things. Uh, number one, I wrote a case on a very interesting Chinese company called Luantai, based in um, southern China, and they're the largest uh, private label apparel manufacturer. So they make for large retailers, Gap Limited, Dillard's, or uh, branded apparel companies like Liz Claiborne in the United States and some European companies. Okay. And they've done a phenomenal thing. They set up this uh, supply chain city, which is a massive facility, probably the largest apparel production facility in the world, uh, intending uh, to leverage a change in trade regulations that happened January 1, 2005. Prior to that, apparel production was heavily regulated and there were quotas as to how much any country could uh, export to the United States by various categories of apparel, which caused apparel to be spread all over the, the world, but um, basically a fragmented supply chain with production in lots of different con- countries because no one country had enough quotas to supply the industry needs. Though that quota system was ostensibly eliminated January 105. And if you look at other categories, say toys, consumer electronics, where there is no quota, you'll see something like 80 to 90% of the production coming out of China. So Luantai believes that's going to happen in apparel, and they set up this 
giant supply chain city to leverage that. Now, this this giant city that you you, you mentioned, um, that's very interesting because that was a step that Lewontide took after kind of looking at the landscape for uh, you know for world manufacturing and coming to a, a certain set of decisions as to how it was going to respond to these changes that you've been discussing in the last few minutes. What sorts of challenges have has Lewontide faced, and what have they done? Um, in addition to building this this large city for its workers and its for its production, what sorts of things have has Lewontide done, and what kinds of takeaways might there be for our listeners who uh, who want to learn more about the way a giant Chinese company goes about doing its business in in this kind of environment? Well, some of their challenges are perhaps unique to apparel. So, in that category, there's a lot of political pressure to to continue some form of restriction on apparel imports. Uh, there's a provision called safeguards that limit, that kind of put back quota to some extent. That lessens less transferable to other product segments where you don't have those same restrictions, such as okay. toys and consumer electronics. The other thing they have been struggling with, which might uh, translate to other industries, is essentially what's the best place to locate various functions. So you think about all the steps involved in sizing up a market, designing a product, and then producing that product, what gets located where. So Lu and Tai's original vision is we'll do it all in China. We'll okay. do design in China. It'll be one-stop shopping for apparel buyers. So they'll fly over. We'll give them really nice offices that look just like their offices back at home. And we can quickly design a garment, make a prototype, get that critiqued by the buyers and redesign it within a few hours, a process that used to, used to take a few weeks to go around that iteration loop. What they found out is that total outsourcing from, let's say, original uh, conception of the design of a product through production and delivery to the store, they call it uh, design to store, doesn't work. Why? Um, Number one, designers don't want to live in southern China. They want to live in the fashion capital, Soho, uh, Manhattan. Uh, so it's hard to get creative people to go there. The Chinese are turning out their own designers, but um, they don't have the reputation and probably not the skill uh, of U.S. designers. And then secondly, it helps a lot to be close to the market. So they've been evolving close to the market you're designing for to understand the end consumer. So they've been refining that concept, and their thought is that there's a, let's call it, customer-facing aspect of design in apparel. What's the artistic look of the garment that would appeal to a particular customer's mm-hmm. look and feel? And then there's a production-facing design. For example, a garment's a two-dimensional object made from, I'm sorry, a three-dimensional object made from two-dimensional pieces of cloth. So there's an engineering function called pattern making that translates that three-dimensional object into a series of two-dimensional shapes cut out of cloth. That engineering production type step uh, could be done in China with an interface between them. So as supply chains become global, uh, companies need to think about what they put where and how they coordinate across those various functions. And in the case of Lu and Tai, which I, I should maybe just parenthetically note for our listeners, uh, the name of the company is spelled L-U-E-N and then Tai, T-H-A-I, Holdings. That was a major decision for them to make, was it not? It was a big bet. It was absolutely a big bet. They're a fairly old company, and they had thrived under the old quota system. 
one of their people joked that if um, if you had a, a sewing factory and owned quota, which is the right to export to the United States or Europe, it was like a license to print money. But with and he said we printed a lot of money, <laughs> but uh, now January 105, that quota system is going to go away. So their license was about to be revoked. Okay. And uh, several years prior to that, they started thinking life is good, but we not, we can't continue in that old way because this elimination of quota is going to change things. So we need we need to have a plan. And this was their answer. Now, but did Lu and Tai have any difficulty convincing its customers in North America and Europe and elsewhere that this design to store concept would work for them? And yeah, absolutely. Because apparel buying is highly cost-driven. Why? Cost is very visible. So a buyer um, knows whether or not they're getting the lowest cost. If they pay a higher cost but they get additional service, well, it's hard to evaluate what those services are worth. That's a, a qualitative judgment, uh, which is harder to size up. So there's a bias towards basing decision-making on the tangible, highly knowable cost. And buyers will move production for uh, you know a few pennies a garment because it's a highly competitive, cost-driven industry. It's sometimes called chasing the cheapest needle. <laughs> and you'll see as a country, apparel is a great way for a country to move up the economic ladder because you can start out making easy-to-produce stuff like T-shirts, very easy to find used uh, sewing equipment, low-skill labor. So any underdeveloped country can get started that way. But then as they move up the ladder, making and China was there um, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, but gradually over time, they've moved way up in their skill and sophistication. And with it, wages have moved up. So China's no longer the, the dirt-cheap, lowest-cost production site. Uh, so what you see happen is uh, companies will move to a, a much less developed country, maybe Bangladesh, okay. um, because wage rates are lower, uh, you get lower production costs called chasing the cheapest needle. So it's hard to compete on service in a cost-driven industry. That's one of the challenges that Lumentai has faced. That's why the company had um, had a bit of a challenge in store for it when it tried to convince its customers that, yes, that their model... Yes, they did. <laughs> they absolutely did. Um, their concept, I think, makes sense. You look at the costs to design, produce, and deliver a garment to the store, only about a third of that cost is manufacturing cost. Uh, and that's the cost that all the buyers gravitate to. The other two-thirds are soft costs, uh, design, logistics, handling, transportation. Uh, so Luantai wants to attack that other two-thirds and try to improve on that. Is the model that, that it has devised being copied by other manufacturers in, in, in low-cost countries? You know, I think it's almost the other way around, that in industries like consumer electronics, which have not had the same degree of trade restrictions as apparel has had, they're much further along in this supply chain city concept. I visited um, Luantai in the, the summer of 2006, and that same visit I um, spent a day at a Chinese company, Taiwanese-based, uh, in the U.S. called Foxconn, 
Um, in China, they'd be called Hanhai. And they, I had not heard of them previously. I was surprised to find out they're about $32 billion in revenue. They'd be a Fortune 50 company if they were based in the U.S. They produce all of the um, branded consumer products. So they produce for Dell, Motorola, Apple, you name it, all the well-known companies. This is one of 12 facilities, and I was struck by the size of it, and I asked somebody how big it was. They said, well, let me put it this way. You came in the front gate, and if you'd started walking from the front gate towards the back gate, it would take you 45 minutes to get there. <laughs> so 225,000 employees, literally a city, their own police force, hospital, school. That's remarkable. Uh, it's remarkable what's happened. I was truly shocked at the scale of um, uh, outsourcing offshoring, uh, the degree to which China has become a juggernaut juggernaut, almost resembling Japan in its ascendancy in the 80s. Well, that's an interesting point. What are the, and of course, Japan, which began post-World War II as a, as a low-cost manufacturer, of course, grew its economy in, uh, tremendously Yes, and, and moved out of that bracket to, um, to become a, a, the, the world's second largest economy. Do you see the same thing happening for China? Are there any, are there any differences with the Japan experience, or, or is China mostly similar to Japan in the way it's um, growing its economy now? You know, Steve, I think it's a very interesting suggestion. I'm sure there are differences, but I'm struck more by the similarities. It looks very, very similar. You know, post-World War II, Japan was very, very low-cost labor. Made in Japan was, at the time, synonymous with low quality. China in the 80s looked the same way. Hmm. Now, 20 years later, China's synonymous with high quality, just as Japan became synonymous with high quality. It looks very similar. It's almost following Japan 30 years lagged. Okay. And they're starting to have some of the problems that Japan had as they became uh, more prosperous, and and it was harder for them to compete on low wages. China's running into rising cost pressures. There was a student of mine, his name is Gong Yu, um, grew up in Wuhan, China, got his Ph.D. at Wharton, taught at the University of Texas for a while, and then left was a VP of supply chain at Amazon, and now he runs Asian sourcing for Dell. Mm. So I stay in touch with him. And when I got back to this visit to Foxconn, I was truly blown away by what a powerhouse China uh, had become. And, and he said, well, uh, don't worry too much. They've, we've got our problems in China. And he talked about rising costs, lack of labor availability, so labor scarcity pushing up costs. Some of the same things that began to afflict the Japanese economy in the early 90s. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, maybe interesting is too weak a word. It'll be highly important yeah. to see what's going to happen in China. Well, now, China, of course, as you well know, has faced a lot of bad publicity uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere for shoddy products being shipped to the United States. Yep, yep. Is that a, is that a reason for They're concern? second only to Walmart in the bad press they're getting. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that a reason for concern on the part of their customers here and elsewhere um, who might have turned to China in the explosion of, of outsourcing abroad only to find that there, are some, there have been some serious drawbacks? I mean, how, do, how should customers here in the U.S. and... Uh, and Europe and elsewhere, think about these problems that China has has had with quality. You know, I'm not sure, Steve, whether their quality problems are any more frequent or greater 
than if those same products, say, 40 years ago, were being produced in the United States, because there would be quality problems then, too. You may recall there was a big tire recall in the U.S. when 10, 20 years ago. So that's kind of point one. I don't really know the objective facts on whether this speaks to substandard quality coming out of China. It's a different government regulating quality than the, than when you're producing in the U.S., and it was your government, the U.S. government, regulating it. So I guess the phrase trust but verify would come to mind. Okay. Uh, Marshall, before we end our conversation, I, I did want to loop back to something you be, you began discussing in the beginning which was of our talk, which was the tremendous change in, in outsourcing in the last couple of decades. Do you think that companies in North America and Europe and, and other developed countries have responded well in seeking out countries like China and India, etc.? Have they done mostly done the right thing in, in finding the right partners to do business with and in approaching the, that, that issue in the right way? Are they getting the most benefit from it, are there, or are there still areas where there could be some improvement on the way uh, firms in, in developed countries go about their purchasing and procurement activities abroad? Well, obviously, Steve, the answer to your question is yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a complex subject, but on balance, I think that they're doing more things right than wrong. But, of course, there's always room for improvement. Having lived through the 80s and teaching operations management at Wharton, it was almost like a religion that if you didn't do manufacturing, real men did manufacturing, real economies did manufacturing. And so it was troubling to me the idea of hollowing out the U.S. economy. But if you think it through, all, all work, this is a slight oversimplification, but not much, all work can be divided into muscle work and brain work. Right, so what we're doing right now, talking to each other, is mostly brain work. A lot of manufacturing is a blend of the two, but many types of manufacturing are more muscle work than brain work. So brain work tends to pay better than muscle work. So if an economy wants to ascend... Has to be carefully managed, but it makes sense to to offshore and outsource the muscle work to low wage rate countries and retain the higher margin brain work. So, for a manufacturing product company, that would include things like market research and product design. Now, that strategy makes sense, but you better be very sure that you are excellent at the brain work. So it's not enough to say we're going to do the product design and marketing uh, and then produce Me Too products or ho-hum an interesting product. You've got to really be world-class at that because these low-cost labor countries that we're outsourcing to, they want to get into the brain work game too. So you see uh, Chinese companies, for example, uh, Foxconn, uh, on their corporate video, the, they've gone. They started out in 1970 making TV knobs, if you could believe that, mm. the most pedestrian product you could think of. And now they've gone to making really high-tech stuff, but it's largely uh, based on low-cost labor. They want to get into innovation, so it's a little bit like riding a tiger. I think that in outsourcing to low labor-cost countries you for sure get a short-term benefit, but there's the risk you may be spawning a competitor. That is an excellent point, and is it one that firms in the U.S. and Europe are going to have to worry about in the next five to ten years? I mean, if, as you well know, there's, there has been a lot of political consternation over the quote-unquote loss of jobs in America to, to low-cost countries. If indeed the, 
brain work, so to speak, is going to be the next challenge to be faced by, say, U.S. firms. Is it, is it a real reason for concern? Could the Chinese in India be uh, critical competitors to uh, U.S. companies in that area? Yeah, absolutely they could be. So I think the key to a prosperous economy is compete on things that pay well. Brain work, I think, pays well. I think implicitly or explicitly by outsourcing labor-intensive activities, anything from manufacturing to call centers, um, to low-labor-cost countries, the U.S. is moving down a path of competing on brain work. But that, that implies a whole bunch of things, like you better have a very good education system or else segments of society get left behind in the U.S. So there's a lot of challenges I think our economy is facing. The education systems in foreign countries are quite good. Right now, labor rates are low there, but you're seeing uh, they're also low for professional services. So you're seeing brainwork-type activities getting outsourced to low-labor-cost countries, not to lab- laborers but to engineers. So software going to India would be an example. Marshall, is there anything uh, in, in terms of research that you're working on now that um, might be pertinent to what we've been talking about? You wrote the case study on uh, Lu and Tai, which you shared with us today. Um, is there anything else that you're working on right now that might be of interest to readers and, and to follow up on when, when that project is completed? Right. That's a good question. Um, you know, right now, and really for the last decade, Steve, my research has been focused on retail supply chain management. And I've been led to be intrigued with and aware of these global issues because retail supply chain management has come to mean global supply chain management. Mm-hmm. So I haven't focused explicitly on that in my research, but I was so intrigued with this, I'm planning to introduce an MBA uh, mini course next year on global supply chain management, almost as a way to, to launch an, a next wave of my research on that topic. There's a joke that the first time a course is taught, uh, the instructor learns. The second time, the students learn. (laughs) And this is probably overly harsh, but then the third time, nobody learns. (laughs) Nobody learns, or they move on to something else. Right. (laughs) Well, we've been... (laughs) It's, it's been a lot of fun, Marshall. We've been speaking yeah. with, with Marshall Fisher of the Wharton School. Uh, Marshall, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Steve. Thank you for listening to Part 3 of our series on procurement. In the next segment, BCG Partner and Managing Director Bob Tevelson will discuss strategies for enhancing customer-supplier relationships. For more information about the Boston Consulting Group, visit bcg.com. For business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.